$10,000 might be a lot of bread, but your daughter's life is the butter topping. Who is it? Why, hello there, nerds. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Welcome, nerdlings. Today's episode is one that still remains unsolved to this day, as it is a case that is 46 years old. The clip you heard in the beginning of the episode is actually the voice of the supposed suspect of this awful, unsolved abduction. It was recorded by the FBI while investigating the case when it first happened and was recently released in 2019 in hopes of trying to finally solve this crime. So today we are going to be diving deep into the kidnapping of a young girl named Margaret Ellen Fox, who disappeared on June 24th, 1974, in New Jersey. One thing to know is that in the United States alone, roughly 300 to 350 persons under the age of 21 are abducted by strangers each and every year. And this is according to the FBI. While it is more rare for child abductions to be conducted by strangers nowadays, It does still occur, and it is awful and breaks their families' hearts. It's actually more common to have non-custodial parent abductions than it is to have a complete stranger do so. But with that said, this does still happen, and it's super important to be aware of. Our case today was one of the more rare child abduction cases, as for all accounts and purposes, it does seem as if the victim was abducted by an unknown suspect. This case is actually super scary because the young girl in question, she disappeared while doing something many of us did as young teenagers. And I also think that there's still a chance that someone out there has more information about this case on what possibly happened to young Margaret Fox back in 1972. But before we get going into our case, Ash and I just wanted to say a deep thank you to all of our listeners who, with your help, we've actually hit a major milestone goal for us, which was a thousand downloads. We also want to give our deep thanks to a special friend we've made along the way, which is to Kevin from the Jury Room Podcast. Kevin is the host and he's become an amazing friend to us. And if you seriously, if you're not listening to a show, you need to be. Here's a quick teaser we have just for you folks to listen to, and hopefully you'll go and check out its full episodes just over on your preferred podcast subscriber. But honestly, can't rave about his show enough, so go check it out. And we just want to say thank you to each and every one of you nerdlings for listening each week, for supporting us, and for recommending us to your friends. Hi, welcome to The Jury Room, a true crime podcast. My name is Kevin, and I will be your host on this journey. We'll be covering some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever be committed against humanity. We will be covering cannibalistic serial killers, Decades-old unsolved mysteries, cold cases, and missing person cases. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Please make sure you go, like, and leave a review. 
now, back to your hosts, Nat and Ash of the Crime Time Nerds Podcast. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to dust off our flashlights as we go searching the darkened streets of a small New Jersey city back in 1974. Our case begins on June 24, 1974, in Burlington, New Jersey, with the disappearance of Margaret Ellen Fox, a young 14-year-old girl. Margaret was beloved by her family, and she was the only girl of five children. She had brown hair, blue eyes, and was missing her two right front teeth. Her younger brother Joe described Margaret as being a tomboy who could hold her own against her brothers. And her family was a tight-knit family. They often went sledding together, ice skating, and even hung out in their family pool during the summer. Like most teenagers, Margaret was looking to find her place in the world. She was in that transitional position that we've all been in when you want independence and to find your own identity, while still having the comfort of your family around you. Margaret was a very independent 14-year-old girl, and she had recently graduated from the eighth grade at St. Paul School, located in Burlington City, and was getting ready to move into high school later that fall. Like many kids her age, Margaret wanted to start babysitting kids for extra money. And just remember, this was the 70s, and it was very common that a 14-year-old would be able to babysit. Margaret and her cousin decided to place ads in the local newspaper in order to advertise for their babysitting services. The girls received a response to their ad fairly quickly from a man by the name of John Marshall, looking to potentially hire one of the girls to babysit a younger five-year-old boy. Initially, Margaret's cousin was going to reach out and see if she could take the job, but due to the location of the job, which was located in a nearby city of Mount Holly, which was around seven miles outside of Burlington. The cousin's family would not allow her to take the babysitting position. So Margaret asked her parents if she could take the job. This was actually going to be Margaret's first babysitting job outside of the typical family babysitting. And her parents gave her their blessing to apply for the babysitting job with the family of John Marshall. The response to the ad stated that John Marshall was a father who was looking to have someone watch his five-year-old son from 9.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. each week. He would pay Margaret $40 a week as well as cover her bus fare over to his home each week. Initially, the response from John Marshall requested Margaret to start on June 21st. The plan was that John Marshall would pick Margaret up in his red Volkswagen at the bus stop at High and Mill Streets in Mount Holly, the morning of June 21st. After the parents got home from work, Marshall or his wife would bring Margaret back home on the 21st by 2 to 2.30 p.m. John Marshall actually called on the day of June 20th and spoke with Margaret's father, David Fox, in order to let him know that they needed to delay Margaret's start date as he and his wife had a death in the family and wouldn't be able to have Margaret start babysitting for them until a few days later. David Fox took this opportunity to try and get a read on the man known as John Marshall, as he and his wife, Mary, had always been very protective of their children. After speaking with John Marshall, he felt that it would be okay to let Margaret go babysit, 
David Fox is quoted as saying, quote, we guarded them too closely, maybe. She used to say we protected her too much, unquote. This was in an article from the Burlington County Times back in 1975. He also went on to state, quote, as I think back, it didn't seem like we did anything wrong in letting her go. It was daylight, unquote. John Marshall left a phone number for Margaret's parents to reach him at, and the two men hung up. They agreed Margaret would take the bus to Mount Holly on the morning of June 24th instead. So on the morning of June 24th, 1974, Margaret Ellen Fox was walked to the bus station by her younger brother, Joe, who was only 11 years old at the time. Margaret was wearing jeans with a yellow patch on the knee, a blue blouse, brown sandals with a heel strap, a white and black checkered jacket, and a gold necklace with flowers and a blue stone in it. Margaret brought her swimsuit so that she could swim in the Marshall's pool and her Huckleberry Hound glasses case. And Huckleberry Hound was a kid's cartoon from that era. So this was the 1970s, and Margaret was 14 years old. The Fox family had really tried to do their best with vetting this prospective patron of their daughter's babysitting service. They even set up a plan with Margaret so that they would feel comfortable with letting her go to the nearby town of Mount Holly. The plan was that after Margaret was picked up from the bus station, she would go to the Marshall's home, and there she would call her parents to let them know that she had arrived safely. Just keep in mind, cell phones and trackers, those didn't exist back then. Margaret's younger brother said that there was no concern when he was walking Margaret to that bus stop that day. Margaret stepped onto the 8.40 a.m. bus. This would be the last time that anyone saw Margaret Ellen Fox. Her brother Joe, who was only 11 years old at the time, was the last person to see Margaret after that dark, fateful day. It was later that morning that Margaret's family began to feel uneasy. I think this is a fear and just a feeling that most parents are are probably pretty familiar with. David and Mary Fox both waited anxiously for that phone call from Margaret, saying she had arrived at the Marshall's house safely. But hours passed, and that phone call never seemed to come. David and Mary Fox tried to reach their daughter at the number that John Marshall had left them, hoping that perhaps Margaret, in her excitement to babysit, had just forgotten to call them. When they called the number, no one picked up. Instead, they learned that the number that supposed babysitting patron John Marshall had given them wasn't a home phone, as had been thought, but instead, that number connected them to a payphone at a local A&P grocery store that was located out on Route 38 in Lumberton. By that afternoon, the parents of Margaret Fox, Mary, and David were starting to feel that anxiety that any parent knows all too well. Something had happened, and their daughter was missing. Margaret had left her parents very detailed notes by the phone about the babysitting job, that she had taken, such as the times that she would be brought back home and actual details about the job itself. After a few hours had gone by, David immediately enlisted his friend from the East Hampton Police Force, and they went to nearby Mount Holly to begin their search for 14-year-old Margaret. Several neighbors of the Fox family also were enlisted in order to help search for Margaret that day. It was immediately evident to all involved that Margaret was not a runaway case, as she had a great family relationship, and she would not have just cut off contact with them, as she cared about each and every one of them way too much. 
the Fox family wasted no time in filing a missing persons report. On midnight of June 25th, less than 24 hours after Margaret was last seen, her father David filed a missing persons report. Leonard Burr, a now-retired detective lieutenant, was called in early for his shift as he was assigned to Margaret's case. Burr retraced Margaret's steps that day, and he even boarded the bus that she had been traveling on to the nearby city of Mount Holly. He found that the bus should have only been a 20-minute ride that day. He also interviewed other passengers to see if they had any relative information to Margaret's case. He found two women who did remember the young Margaret Fox that day. They remembered her exiting the bus at the Mount Holly stop where she was supposed to go in order to meet the patron John Marshall. The other witness remembered seeing Margaret speak with a man after she left the bus who was near a red sports car and looked to have been in his 20s. The man the witness saw was interviewed and the police were able to eliminate him as a suspect as Margaret had just been asking him if he was, in fact, John Marshall. Margaret's photo was shown to everyone possible the first few days of her disappearance. There were just not a lot of eyewitnesses who came forward during the early part of the investigation into the disappearance of Margaret Ellen Fox. Within a few days of Margaret's disappearance, the FBI was called in. FBI agent Burl Cloninger was then assigned to Margaret's case on June 28th, 1974, just four days after her disappearance. That day, there was an unknown caller who contacted the Fox's residence. The caller demanded $10,000, and in exchange, the Fox family would get their daughter back. FBI agents recorded the call as they were at the home hoping to hear from the kidnapper. The family also received a letter in the mail the day after the call. That letter stated, quote, 10,000 is a lot of bread, but your daughter's life is the buttered topping, unquote. Margaret's family didn't even delay. They immediately went to the bank and withdrew $10,000 from their savings in order to deliver the ransom to try and get Margaret back. Unfortunately for the Fox family, the ransom instructions never came to them. Instead, they received yet another letter in the mail stating that the deal was off. That letter read, quote, 10,000 was a lot of bread, but your daughter's life was the buttered topping, unquote. This letter literally gives me so many chills. It's so creepy and so unsettling. The FBI was never able to determine if the letters and the payphone were legitimate or if they were just monstrously evil, cruel pranks done to this grieving family. The letters, however, did give the FBI the ability to get latent fingerprints off of them in order to allow for testing against anyone within that FBI database. Unfortunately, there were no hits on the fingerprints. With those leads becoming dead, the Burlington police began to interview any drivers of a red Volkswagen that they could find. They also looked for any man with the name John Marshall within that nearby area. One person that did become a main person of interest was a man named John Marshall, who actually happened to work at that local A&P grocery store that we mentioned earlier. This was the store where that payphone number happened to belong to, as this payphone was located right outside of the store. 
The police were pretty skeptical, however, that the suspect would have ever given his real name, and the real John Marshall, who worked at the AMP, actually took and did pass a polygraph, as well as he had a alibi for the day of Margaret's actual abduction. He was quickly cleared as being a suspect. I just want to make that very clear. John Marshall of the AMP was fully cleared of being a suspect. The search continued for young Margaret Fox for days, and then that search led into months. In an interview that occurred about a month after Margaret's disappearance, her father, David Fox, is quoted as saying, quote, I can't imagine what has happened to her. A child her age. We are heartbroken. Unquote. My heart breaks for them, too. David Fox, Margaret's father, searched for years for his little girl. He would do it on his own time and always held on to hope that they would find her. He was quoted as having said in August of 1974, quote, I have a feeling that in my search, she will break out and I will be there at the right time and place, unquote. David Fox would take everyday type tasks, such as going to the grocery store, shopping, you know, typical everyday errands. He would take those and use them as excuses to go and look for his daughter, which breaks my heart. He always had missing posters in his car and with him at all times in order to try and find her. Police, in their search, eliminated 12 potential suspects during this time. They fielded calls regarding tips that never led to finding Margaret. And by the late 1970s, most tips had fully dried up and Margaret's case had become a cold case. No other significant leads regarding Margaret's disappearance have ever come to light since that last letter was received by the Fox family. Some of the issues that the police ran into during the investigation of Margaret's case is that back in the 1970s, we did not have DNA evidence. We didn't have voice recognition software. Database sharing wasn't a thing between police forces back then. This created a black box regarding information outside of a specific town. Information could only get obtained if you knew someone on the other force. It is thought that the black box that was the inability to share information between police forces could have negatively impacted Margaret's case. Currently, Margaret's case is being reviewed by a retired Willingboro police detective whose name is Michael Delizio, who is working with the Burlington Police Department in order to sift through old records and take a fresh look at Margaret's case. Delizio has received several boxes worth of documents regarding Margaret's disappearance and searching for any potential leads in Margaret's case. Delizio is quoted as saying, quote, you just reanalyze the data and see if something jumps out at you and you contact the authorities that were involved in the original case and see where it ended with them and why, unquote. Michael Delizio is currently still working through this case and trying to bring new eyes and more modern methods of investigation into Margaret's case in order to try and solve it after all these years. DNA from Margaret's family has been tested against any remains found in the town of Burlington in nearby towns, and at this time, no hits have come from that. Margaret's younger brother, Joe, is now an adult. He has stated in interviews that his parents always thought that one day Margaret would just return home. Unfortunately, she has not been seen at this time, and it's been over 45 years. Margaret's parents have both passed away in recent years. They never got to see their little girl return home. The community still remembers the impacts of Margaret's disappearance that day, 
back in 1974. She had never been forgotten, not by her family or by her community. The FBI still has this case listed as a cold case, but there is always hope that something will come to light that would break open this case and finally give answers as to what happened to Margaret that awful day 46 years ago. Currently, the FBI has a reward out for any information regarding the disappearance of Margaret Fox. Police have also released photos of what Margaret Fox would look like today in hopes that perhaps Margaret is still alive, although there is not much hope that she will ever be found alive at this point in time. We will post these photos on our Instagram as well for for folks. Margaret's case is one that reminds us just how unsafe it can be for young children out in this world and just how important it is to know who your children are interacting with. Perhaps one day, Margaret Fox's case will be solved, and there will finally be answers given to her family about just who kidnapped her that awful day back on June 24th, 1974. Perhaps one day we will know for sure if Margaret Fox is alive or if she was murdered, as is highly suspected after she was abducted by what is thought to be the man who was only known as John Marshall. We can only hope, like we say in a lot of these episodes, I mean, you just feel so awful for her family. It was a long time ago, and you can't blame her parents or any parents in that matter for believing that the world was more innocent than it maybe was. I completely agree. Her father actually had tried making sure he seemed on the up and up. She, he had talked to the man, tried to get a read on him, It's just one of those situations where somebody took advantage of a a hole in the system and used this ad as a way to abduct a a child. I honestly think that John Marshall was probably what we would consider nowadays a early form of the online child predators, the folks who pretend to be another young child and lure kids in. We, we've seen so many similar cases to this now where, you know, a child or a tween, they're lured from their home and then abducted. So to me, that's that's what John Marshall seems like is an early form of that type of predator. It's just crazy that he used a payphone as a way to trick the family. It's, it's so scary how smart that was and how, like, conniving in a way. Yeah, that definitely is the scary part that this John Marshall found a way, like, this was definitely in his mind way before that mm-hmm. he he found a way to somehow give the family the number of a payphone and actually use yeah. the name of an actual employee from the store. Right. The other thing that's crazy, too, is, is he banked on the fact that they wouldn't have called that number back immediately, which is really scary that it worked out for him that way. Yeah, that's that's awful. Yeah, it definitely seems like this was 100% premeditated. He knew he was going to abduct her. Yeah, I definitely agree. This was 100% premeditated. He just had, I mean, still not caught today. It's... Yeah. This person, this John Marshall suspect, Mm -hmm. definitely knew what he was doing. Yeah, for sure. And the letter he sent in that message, oh my God, that gives me such chills. Such chills. Yeah. Oh, listening to that audio from -hmm. the phone call as well, as long like as well as reading the letters it's just yeah it's it's terrifying the thing that i think got me the most is how he changes tense the first letter said is like your daughter is and then in the second letter it was was and that to me just is like 
super, super unsettling and scary. And I, I can't, I don't even have words to explain the, the feeling. It's just awful. Yeah, that's the whole pretense thing that I totally agree. I'm curious on this one. Do you think that the the letter or that the phone call and the letters, do you think that those were from the actual suspect? Do you think that he, uh, that from John Marshall, I should say, do you think that he reached out to the family in order to try to kind of gloat or obtain some form of ransom? Or do you think that this was a prank? Ah, uh, oof. Um, I mean, seeing as he tricked the family with using a payphone initially, mm-hmm. I could see him doing something like this. I could definitely see him sending out the letter, um, making that phone call, just, mm-hmm. yeah, to, to kind of gloat, to to just be an awful person. I'd yeah. so try to get money off of this family. Like, I don't know. To me, it almost seems like I don't feel like this was this guy's first time is the scariest part of this. I really don't think this was... I. If they ever are able to solve this case, it's going to be very hard if they can. But if they ever are able to, I would not be surprised if there were more abductions. Maybe in different locations, especially because back then they were they were hindered by the fact that a lot of the information was staying in one precinct and one district and not able to be shared. I wouldn't be surprised if there are more abductions during that time frame. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. But you're right, because mm. this... I mean, from his perspective, that, like, he kind of sailed by smoothly, still mm-hmm. not being caught, like, not even right. having too many inklings on who this person was yeah. or is. And just how cocky he was about it. Like, he, he wasn't concerned at all that they were going to call that phone. That's surprising to me. He just, the, the bravery with which this this abductor interacted with the family that's scary. Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it could have been a prank because people are awful and they, they do these kind of things. But I'm with you on this. I I believe it was the killer or the yeah. abductor. Absolutely. And I think it was just recently released by the FBI, too. So they, they had this for a long time, this, yeah. this audio clip. I think I'd be curious to see if, as time goes on, they're able to utilize some of the voice recognition software for a future, like maybe if they get a suspect ever into custody, that could be really helpful for them to solve this case, as well as the DNA, because luckily the Fox family has submitted their DNA. So that's that's one good thing that could eventually maybe lead to, to finding out what happened to Margaret. I, I got to ask, do you think she's still alive? Do you think there's a chance? Oh, you had to ask. I know. I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, I do not think she is. I mean... We've seen cases where people have been um, locked in basements or in houses. They've been there for for like 12 plus years. Um, But seeing as this is, what is it, 34 years? 45. Wow. Yeah, 45 years. I just don't really see that being the case. I don't either. I suspect, unfortunately, I don't think Margaret survived much longer after she was abducted. Yeah, and that's usually the case. It's that first 48 hours, especially with um, children. Yeah, is huge. So I can't imagine the pain her family has felt all these years. I really can't. I don't want to. Yeah, that is. I just hope that one day they're able to to actually get get some answers. 
Yeah, definitely. I really hope they do as well. Yeah. Hopefully they'll be able to find her body. And once that's found, maybe they can actually use her remains to to get some answers about what happened to her, who did it, and maybe make somebody pay. I'm actually very hopeful about the retired detective, Michael Delizio. I really like that he's um, going through all of the old records right now in order to try to see if they can potentially find something that was missed earlier in the investigations. I think that could be a huge piece for this. Sometimes just a fresh pair of eyes is, is what you need to find that one piece that stands out or that one person that maybe should be talked to again. And like I was saying earlier, with more of the databases being linked and and having those access to digital records, I, I hope that maybe that will help to shed some light on this too. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like you said, having a fresh pair of eyes looking at a case, somebody who has like, who hasn't been looking at the case for a while and has that first beginning mm-hmm. drive to just look for some answers yeah i think that's really important really important i do too absolutely so we can hope that maybe one day the fox the remaining fox family can get get some justice and some answers about what happened to their their margaret yeah and with that nerdlings we conclude the kidnapping case and possible murder of margaret fox from burlington new jersey back in 1974 We can only hope that maybe one day soon, Margaret's remaining family will find some news as to what happened to their beloved sister that day, back on June 24th, 1974. Until that day, nerdlings, remember Margaret's name so that she is never forgotten. Perhaps one day we can follow up with an update on this case and that the Fox family can finally have some closure on what happened to Margaret that awful day. If you liked this episode or any of our others, please hit that subscribe button and feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at CrimetimeNerds or check out our case notes at CrimetimeNerds.com where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at CrimetimeNerds and an email you can reach us at, which is CrimetimeNerds at gmail.com. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.